from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is uh, Friday, October the 9th. 2020, and we're so glad to have you with us this morning. We've got a good full show lined up. We're going to be speaking first off with uh, blogger uh, Kevin Ellis. He's going to talk to us about uh, the uh, latest column he's written calling for the creation of a new commission on Vermont's future, also known, he says, as the Prosperity Commission, talking about uh, the road ahead for our great state here, and uh, should be an interesting conversation about what he's talking about in this uh, latest blog post of his. In the uh, second half hour, we're going to get a a second visit from a team of debaters. Uh, Dave Kelly is a longtime uh, debate coach here in Vermont, and James Tedesco is a former uh, coachee or mentee or whatever you call that of Dave Kelly's, who is now in the uh, debate society at the University of Vermont. And the two of them are going to give us a little review now that they've had time to digest the uh, vice presidential debate of the uh, night before last. So uh, we should uh, get the, those guys on the air again. They, they gave us a good critique last week of uh, the debate between President Trump and uh, vice, former Vice President Joe Biden, and uh, back for round two this week. So uh, later on in the program, we're going to be speaking with an old Vermont friend of Do- Tom Farmer. He used to work for WCAX years ago, went on to a career at CNN, and uh, now he's out uh, as a uh, co- co-author of a new book called Bombarded. It's all about the Internet and uh, the Internet's effects on people, both from the point of view of uh, gathering information on people and uh, also conveying information. The um, the uh, book is going to be, uh, I think, an a interesting read for a lot of people who are wondering just what is going on online out there. Uh, sandwiched in between all that, uh, middle of the show, we go to one of our national correspondents just after the mid-show break. Today it's Bob Nay. He joins us on Fridays these days, and uh, we'll be talking with Bob about all the recent developments in the news nationally. So uh, lots to talk about with Bob this morning. Uh, let's get right to it with uh, Kevin Ellis, if we could. And uh, Kevin, uh, good morning. It's uh, nice, to, nice to hear from you. Good morning. And uh, so you are uh, out with this new blog post talking about a commission on the future of Vermont. And um, tell us a little bit about what, what it would be doing. What would its charge be in your view? Well, I think, Dave, that we face, uh, I think the state's at a crossroads, uh, which happens periodically over the generations. And I think when you're at such a crossroads, uh, shrinking demographics, struggling schools, a pandemic, um, uh, an Internet that is changing uh, the way everyone shops, the way our downtowns are focused, um, I think periodically you have to come together and... Uh, gather your best minds, sit around a table, go out and meet on, with Vermonters on the road and assess the situation and the challenges and propose, uh, make proposals for the future. And uh, how many members would the commission have and who should appoint them? Well, you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, how these things succeed or fail. And I think, as I proposed in the blog, that this re- this requires a commitment of the governor and the legislature and, it's, and the legislative leaders. Without that, it's just another commission that writes a report and it sits on a dusty shelf. So I called for uh, the governor to make a historic 
uh, you know, walk like Dick Snelling did or walk over to the Speaker of the House's office and say, we need to work together on this. Um, I, I haven't figured out quite the the makeup of the commission. I, I invite uh, readers to um, to submit names, uh, knowing that my framework is going to be, uh, you know, as a 61-year-old white man, my my suggestions are going to be a little skewed. Um, but So I invite readers to uh, suggest names of people uh, that I would miss that ought to be on this. I would point out that back, we, we've done this before. Vermont has a history of doing this, actually, and we're pretty good at it. In 1988, mm-hmm. Madeline Cunin set up the, the, a so, the so-called Growth Commission, chaired by Doug Costell, the former head of the EPA. And that commission was quite small, only I think about 10 or 12. Uh, and they came up with recommendations to how best to plan for growth and development in the future. Um, that was sort of the one of the latest. The Vermont Council on Rural Development has done this. Um, but as I say, the key... So I haven't figured... I think this commission should be bigger and more involved. But as I say, the key to success is a, is a political commitment from the governor and the legislature uh, that it succeeds. Sort of like a we're going to, we're, we are going to do what the commission recommends, that kind of thing? Well, uh, a, a little bit of that. But I think more importantly on the front end, uh, the governor and the speaker of the house and the president of the senate have to come together and say, look, we're coming through this pandemic. We're learning how to live with it, but we've got challenges that require, uh, more than just the day-to-day, you know, we have to plug the budget hole. We have to make sure kids can go to school uh, in person or on Zoom. You know, those are sort of all of those things are emergency crisis decisions. We need to sit down and do some serious planning ahead for the next generation. I'm talking 25 to 50 years ahead to understand mm-hmm and then set the table for what Vermont is going to be in the next generation. And that can't happen unless the governor and the legislative leadership come together, take a picture, have a press conference, and say, we together are committed to a commission to examine these issues and propose answers. And will we agree on everything? Probably not. But it's if you have that kind of commitment from the top, from the governor, um, I think you can get it done. The uh, Blue Ribbon Tax Commission, which uh, I think convened in about 2011, if I recall correctly, uh, produced a report which made uh, quite a number of recommendations and uh, which was lauded. Uh, that, that panel was lauded in many quarters as, as, as having come up with some innovative ideas and, uh, and really made a deep and careful study of Vermont's uh, current tax structure, and, and et cetera. Here it is nine years later, and um, <clears throat> not much has happened. It's, it's one, yeah, and I point that out in the blog. It's one of the more disappointing. Um, I mean, that commission was filled with smart people, and they made mm-hmm. some very. They, as you point out, they made some very far-reaching proposals to make tax changes that would make us money. We are leaving millions of dollars on the table because, for some reason, the legislature and the governor have been unable to. Adopt any of those recommendations, and I and I go back to saying I, I think that's because 
you know, by nature, the legislature and the governor uh, govern by emergency and govern by what is in front of them immediately. The ability to, 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 to look forward down the road gives you the time and the space to entertain these, uh, to entertain these notions. That, that tax commission, um, that we're leaving millions of dollars on the table and that, that is one of the documents that I think a commission on the future of Vermont should begin with. I, my suspicion is that one of the uh, one of the um, problems with implementing the recommendations of that tax commission uh, and and really uh, any any tax commission that might try again is just uh, there seems to be this uh, long running suspicion uh, between uh, frankly uh, de- Democrats and Republicans uh, and, and these days that means executive and legislator. Of course, we have a Republican governor who is uh, really, really uh, cool to any any talk of new taxes in Vermont. Or, and so I think there's a fear among many Republicans that when Democrats talk about top tax changes, they talk they talk about you know looking for ways to squeeze more money out of Vermonters' pockets. And there's a fear among Democrats that uh, uh, you know when the Republicans talk about tax reform, they're talking about you know giveaways to Vermont's wealthier people and so yeah, that's right. uh there has to be a i think a reduction of, of a suspicion and wariness here before anything gets done doesn't there right there certainly does and i might make a political point here uh, as i point out in the blog um two points number one you're right every once in a while the adults have to be adults and have to get over themselves um, there is a. We all need to grow up here and move on from the Trump uh, tactics and and uh, vibe to to becoming what the Vermonters have done so often in the past. And there's a political opportunity here. Uh, the governor is say, the governor is going to cruise to re-election. He is widely admired for his handling of the virus. Um, mm-hmm. He is he is politically safe. The legislature, the Democratic majority in the legislature is also politically safe. And therefore, the, the Republicans aren't going to take over the legislature for, call it, the next eight years. You've got a new incoming president of the Senate in Becca Ballant from Brattleboro, who is a, a modern thinker, um, and I think is willing to uh, take some risks. And so I think the political moment exists where the two are safe politically and therefore they can take some chances and my third point Dave is you're right there is suspicion but at some point uh, that suspicion has to be overridden by mature Vermont leadership that puts aside petty political jealousies and thinks about the future um, together and says you know what some of this stuff I may not like if I'm a Republican or if I'm a Democrat, but you know what? I'm going to come together and because we need more people here, we need to fill schools, we need to create jobs. I, the shorthand I gave the commission was the Prosperity Commission because it seems to me that the word prosperity is a is a term that we can all rally around. Whether you're rich, poor, Democrat, or Republican, we all want to be prosperous. We all want money in our pocket. And we all want to see our children do well. So I think that's a term that we can all gather around. 
In terms of our uh, our children doing well, one of the one of the things I was actually just mentioning, I think in, yesterday or the day before here on on the Dave Graham show and WDEV was that uh, housing prices in Vermont have been uh, kind of crazy for a while, and right now they seem to be going absolutely bonkers. And I think yeah. some of that is the is the pressure uh, we're seeing from people looking to move here from out of state who are frankly showing up. With quite a bit of money, typically, if they sell a house, uh, you know, down in New Jersey or Massachusetts or someplace, and they want to come up here to get into a place with uh, many fewer uh, uh, cases of COVID-19, they are frequently cash rich after selling selling a house down country, and they show up here and all of a sudden uh, a house that might have been Priced at uh, two hundred fifty thousand a year ago is going to be three hundred fifty or four hundred thousand this year. Um, what do you do about that? Well, you can look at that as a negative, or you can look at it as as a positive. Um, yeah, in in nineteen eighty eight, we formed the Coastal Commission because the development was out of control. We were concerned that Act two fifty wasn't doing its job, and we were going to be overrun by rampant development. I would I would take the the housing prices as a positive and say what pe- what what covid is doing is it's accelerating what we, what people down down country were already thinking you know i've got two kids i live in brooklyn new york in an apartment that's too small i'm i'm commuting 40 minutes a day and what i really want to do uh is replicate the the experience i had in an airbnb in vermont and I want to move my family there for an outdoor lifestyle and a better sta- a better way of living. And I think COVID has accelerated that. So I think some Vermonters are getting money in their pockets by selling their houses. And I think we're getting new people moving here, uh, which is good for the state, in my view. Now, are there are there problems with that? Sure. Are suddenly schools in southern Vermont over over enrolled? Sure. But I think those are issues that we can all deal with. I don't. I don't think it's creating a crisis that is overrunning the state. I think new people coming here is is a good thing, and it's showing us that our outdoor lifestyle and the way we live here is something that is attractive to huge amounts of people all over the country. The, the concern I think that, that was on my mind when I I may have uh, framed it in too negative a tone or something when I was describing this, but. I, there is a concern, which is that uh, young people in particular who are who have grown up in Vermont may wish to uh, stay here and uh, you know start their lives, maybe uh, buy a house, start a family, and all that sort of good stuff. Um, you know, if you are if you're out there in making twenty something dollars per hour, you're not going to buy a three hundred and fifty thousand, four hundred thousand dollar house. I mean, it's just way beyond the thirty percent of your income that everybody recommends. You know, you spend as a maximum on housing, um, and what do you do about that? <laughs> well, you're asking me to. Well, first of all, I'm no housing expert, so I'm way yeah, yeah. out of my league on that question. Okay. But I think those, but the, but those are the questions that a commission can answer. Those are the yeah. questions. I mean, we we have a robust affordable housing community ecosystem in this state. We're building, I mean, we built, I'm on the board of a local affordable housing nonprofit, and we built, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 units of affordable housing in Montpelier alone just last year. You know, we recognize that 
housing prices are a problem and, and affordable housing is a key issue to our children, and I have four of them, none of whom uh, live and work here, um, would bring them back or keep them... Wait, how many of them will live or work here? None. I have four children, and none of them live or work here. Wow. Okay. And I, and I know some of them would like to. Yeah. Um, Why don't they? So... Oh, because uh, of a lack of, uh, you know, look, they're in their twenties and early thirties, and they want the they want the energy of the city. They grew up here, so yeah, yeah, you know, they they know what it's like to grow up here. I'm not a big fan of actually making spending a huge amount of time keeping kids here for their entire lives. I think kids ought to go away and then come back and mm-hmm. bring bring mm-hmm. back what they've learned out there in the world. Yeah, uh, but I think both. But I think both are good. Not everybody has to leave. And you're right. We have an affordable housing issue, and I think we can deal with it. But I think we need to sit down as a group with a with a commission of experts led by people we respect, backed by the political support from the political leadership in the state, to say you have a mandate to look at this. You're going to travel around the state with a staff. You're going to have public hearings. And we're going to sit down in committees by, we'll have an affordable housing committee. We'll have a, you know, we'll, ha- we'll have committees that cover all these subject areas. And then we'll come together and we're going to write a report with recommendations to the legislature. Um, and we're not going to be stopped by petty jealousies about, oh, how are you going to pay for these recommendations? Or arguments about, you know, are you going to raise taxes? Obviously, the goal would be for it to be tax neutral. Uh, but these are these are larger issues. It's not arguing about whether Democrats are going to try to raise taxes. It's about what is this state going to be in the next generation. I just wanted to mention one thing about the, the uh, one more thing, Kevin, about the um, expenses facing, especially our young people, young families who are trying to get established in Vermont. And uh, if you pile it up, if you if you look at the uh, housing costs, if you look at adding to that uh, child care, you know, any any family with young children has to deal with that. Uh, uh, student loans being paid back. Um, and uh, it, it's just a, it's a really daunting thing, especially for people who are in the uh, early parts of their careers when they're typically earning, uh, you know, a lower salary than they will in their 40s, 50s. Um, and I, I guess, you know, that, that that's the in fact, I just this is fresh in mind because I recently had two separate conversations with uh, a couple of uh, younger women, uh, I guess both in their 30s, and they were telling me, uh, it just came up spontaneously from each of them separately, that they would love to have kids, um, and they don't feel like they can afford it because of all these giant expenses, and when you add childcare to their already existing challenges, uh, the, um, uh, it just gets to be kind of out of the question, and then you look at the demographics in Vermont, and you go, hmm, <laughs> maybe that's what, this is the problem, I don't know, but uh, uh, is that something that you could envision a commission looking at and trying to figure out the the roots of our demographic issues in the state? I, I sure do. I, I would point out a couple of things. I think the affordability crisis and child care uh, is not just a Vermont issue, obviously. It's nationwide. Yeah. It's a cultural. It's a cultural issue that we, as a society, have not taken on 
as we have embraced the internet and embraced two family households working uh, and sort of this sort of got biased suddenly to make a living you both parents have to work and we sort of took the childcare thing for granted and now COVID has pulled back the curtain and revealed that we really have created a society that is not all that fair <laughs> and we've, we've got a lot of work to do I think across the country uh, what can Vermont do to solve its problems in this area? Again, I, I my my proposal is to have a commission to come together and talk about these things and figure it out. It's not easy. My proposal, I think this is in the blog post. We need twenty five thousand new people in this state, and you know we we had a problem in Rutland welcoming I think two or three Syrian families which I point out in the blog, have been huge successes in that community. Um, we need we need to do that again. We need to replicate that model. We need new people here that are going to fill schools, create jobs, run businesses, create restaurants, uh, so that people can be more prosperous. I, I think the answer that all that Republicans and Democrats can get around, can come together around, is the idea that we need more job creation. We need more money in people's pockets so they can build a life for themselves here. In terms of job creation, uh, you know, the old model was, uh, I mean, I remember Howard Dean considering a giant success. I think he lured a, a company called Husky to open a plant in Milton, and that was a huge deal back in the 90s. Um, we don't see as much of that kind of, uh, you know, trying to dangle just the right incentives to get a big employer to move into Vermont these days. Uh, is that just because they're not around, or is it because our strategy has changed, or what's going on there? I think, I think number one, we recognized that that strategy was a mistake. Uh, number two, I think this, that those strategies have changed necessarily and what we've realized is that the backbone of an economy is small businesses and I think I once asked um, you know I once asked Senator Ash the former president of the Senate what, how do you do economic development he said you need people with pickup trucks and tool belts uh, building things and, and I you know that sort of struck home to me um a more organic kind of economic development that in which people, local people, are working doing local things, whether it's building an addition for dealer.com in Burlington or whether they're building a house or weatherizing existing houses. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's doable. I, you know, I would point out one thing, uh, and I've been complaining about this for many years. We have a we have an agency of uh, commerce community development and to my understanding that agency has never been asked to produce a economic development plan for the state you know what is Hmm. the plan is it is it uh you know when you go to new york you see billboards advertising come ski at stratton you know in the subway Uh, yeah so is that the strategy uh, is it to is it billboards or is it social media online? Is it uh, I, I don't know what it is, and you know I don't. I just like to see a plan. I'd like to see our government say, come together and say, 
this is the way you do economic development. We've listened to the experts, and this is the way we do it. Are we going to compete with Alabama on utility costs? No. Are we going to compete with them on on uh, tax taxes? No. But I firmly believe, and I think the evidence bears it out, that people don't make decisions based on their tax decisions. Uh, sure, some people move to Naples, Florida to get out of paying taxes. But mm-hmm. people want to live here. People love this state. You know, and they're they're willing to put up with the cold and the dark, uh, and and a and a not so great tax structure, in order yep. to live the kind of lifestyle that they want to live. That's our our ace in the hole is our lifestyle here. Well, Kevin, uh, we're about out of time, but I appreciate you joining me this morning. What's the website for your blog so people can go read it all for themselves? Great, and and also past blogs, and please subscribe. the The blog is kevinkellis.com, and it is called Conflict of Interest. Alrighty, Kevin Ellis, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Nice chatting with you. Many thanks, Dave. Talk to you soon. Alrighty, well, let's take a brief break here at the bottom of the hour for CBS News Minute, and we'll be back shortly with more of the Dave Graham Show. Stay with us, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. And speaking of the Warren Store, we want to thank them for sponsoring our podcast. If you uh, can't listen to the radio between 9 and 11 a.m. weekday mornings when we are live on the air here, you can always go to the Internet and uh, check out what we've been doing and get caught up. Uh, we, uh, you can go to WDEVradio.com. That's the homepage for the station. And you can uh, follow the link on that homepage to the Dave Graham Show. Scroll down a bit. You'll come up with a list of our recent programs by topic and by guest, and you will uh, be able to uh, check out what we've been up to. The Warren Store has been the uh, sponsor of our podcast, I think, pretty much since we started it, and we really appreciate that. And so the uh, friendly, funky, and almost world-famous Warren Store, we love talking about them on WDEV, one of my favorite businesses in the region here and there. It's a pretty cool place, so go check it out. Anyway, uh, got a couple of good guests lined up here. We, we uh, were all booked up yesterday and didn't get a chance to talk much about the vice presidential debate of the night before, but we're going to get caught up on that now. Um, we had a, two people on last week after the uh, presidential um, mud, mud fest or whatever that was <laughs> between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and uh, this week it was a little calmer, I'd say, uh, between uh, Mike, uh, Vice President Mike Pence and uh, Senator Kamala Harris, the Democratic nominee for Vice President, and um, the uh, the two of them uh, talked on uh, Wednesday evening and uh, wanted to check back with our, our veteran debate judges, <laughs> or whatever, uh, on the uh, on the Dave Graham show here, uh, debate analysts will call them since they now they're on the uh, on the show for the second time. And uh, James Tedesco is a, is a debater at the University of Vermont and uh, and also was a debater um, when he was in high school over uh, the uh, Hazen 
Union High School in Hardwick, and uh, his debate coach was Dave Kelly. And so we're, we got a little uh, reunion going on between the uh, two of them, and uh, they're on our air via telephone right now. James and Dave, uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us again. Well, good morning, Dave. Good morning. And so let me start with James, if I could. I gather you watched this uh, debate on Wednesday evening, and uh, what did you think? Yeah, what a different flavor for a debate. Um, I think, like, it was still a little bit rough, but I also was pleased that a little bit of discussion arrived this time. You mean on actual issues and substance? Yeah, I think it might it might <laughs> Who be that is? Yeah. I, I, could, I could only be really appreciating it through the lens of the last debate. I'm not sure in the scope of all debates through time that this is one of my favorites. But mm-hmm. at least it's kind of trending in the right direction. Uh, some people were, were still uh, somewhat critical of Vice President Pence for talking over his time limits uh, quite frequently in the debate, and and I saw somewhere that he interrupted uh, Senator Harris uh, something like sixteen times. Uh, was that okay, or or do you think he was uh, maybe still a bit out of line, just not as out of line as his uh, ticket mate there, that uh, other guy, Donald Trump? Yeah, I think he was definitely still out of line. I think one of the most common phrases of the night was Vice President Pence, uh, just because there were so many times when it had to be called to attention that he not interrupt. I think Kamala handled that kind of a situation excellently. She identified the problem and then waited. And at the same time, she did that with a sort of suave. She did it with a smile on her face. Uh, and I think that not only it was tactfully done, but I also think it was uh, something of a necessity for her because she found herself in a position where women kind of are put into this position where they can't come off as too cold. I think there's this societal pressure that if we have women who come on too strong, we see them as like unfit for the role or out of control. And so she really intentionally smiled every time one of these situations came up. Obviously, it was a painful moment for her, uh, but I think she really, I think she held it together. Yeah, uh, Dave Kelly, uh, what did you think? Uh, what was your overall impression of this this debate uh, this week? Well, to, to kind of put it in perspective, last night I went back because all all of the debates going back 50 years are, are on YouTube, and you can listen to the Kennedy-Nixon debate. There's even a 1967 debate uh, between Ronald Reagan and Robert Kennedy. And when you listen to the debates in this election year and the debates from times gone by, um, it's hard to escape the conclusion that we have descended into uh, a a not very healthy uh, uh, public dialogue. Um, I I thought that uh, Pence had by far the heavier burden in uh, the vice presidential debate because the central issue was Trump and he had to defend Trump's handling of COVID. He had to defend what has been revealed about Trump's tax returns. Um, He had to defend uh, Trump's comments on the military, his comments about John McCain. And um, all of that is a, a, a pretty heavy burden for anyone to defend in a debate. And, and essentially, it seemed as though a lot of what he was doing uh, was denying uh, some of the statements attributed to the president. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I've seen some, I've seen some, uh, reporting from pretty reliable media outlets that do raise questions about this allegation that the president, uh, um, talked about, uh, as, as simply about the Charlottesville, uh, uh, confrontation as it is sometimes alleged. You know, he supposedly uh, pretty much said something like, uh, there were very fine people on both sides, meaning neo-Nazis and then the counter-protesters in Charlottesville. And uh, what he actually said was was more extensive than that, and he was sharply critical of the white supremacists who uh, who came to that uh, Virginia city back there in, uh, I believe it was 2017. And uh, so... In some cases, the the vice president, uh, you know, seemed to have a legitimate point in trying to defend some of the president's statements. In in other cases, uh, there was less there to defend. I guess. Uh, uh, did you think that 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 uh, that effort by him worked, Dave Kelly? No, I, I don't think so. I, I don't really think either of these debaters moved the needle or changed the dynamics of this election. I I just think that that. Pence had a much heavier burden, um, and I don't think uh, he, he changed anything. Um, and I think uh, Kamala Harris pretty much kept the, uh, the Biden-Harris campaign on the track it's on. And I think if you look at any of the polls, it's clear that, uh, you know, barring some catastrophe, um, Biden's going to win this election because Trump has been so tone deaf for four years. Um, he, in 19, in, in 2016, he, he, he tapped into a real sense of, uh, anger and frustration with the fact that our country was, was changing so much economically and so much power and influence and money was being concentrated in so few hands and the, the widening gap between the, the haves and the have-nots, um, and the frustration with so-called coastal elites. Um, but his uh, his language, his tone, um, his pettiness has, you know, e- eroded um, uh, some of that. And and do you think that the um, James Tedesco? Do you think that? Uh, let me ask you, James. Actually, you're 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 now you've done you you've done quite a number of debates in high school and, and now at UVM, and I wonder of. Have you ever had a fly land on your head in the middle of a debate? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not had a fly land on my head. Usually because I'm waving my hands around so much, I think I ward them all off. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. That's probably a good strategy. <laughs> that was a funny moment. <laughs> well, you know, um, in high school debate and in college debate, when I was there, uh, we used to um, have uh, huge piles of research we would take into the debates with us. Uh, and we would keep most of it on index cards. And in the state championships one year, I I dropped my my card files in the middle of oh. a speech, and um, that was a lot worse than having any fly land on your head. <laughs> I, I I picked it up. I tried to recover. I know the judge felt sorry for me, uh, but we did <clears throat> not win the state championships that year. Oh shucks! Yeah, reminds me of the time I was. Uh playing uh, trombone at a little uh, brass choir thing at a priest's coronation and uh, uh, ordination I think is the word the proper word actually he was becoming a priest whatever that the technical term is and uh, not becoming queen uh, of England uh, no no 
<laughs> just a, a regular good old parish priest. Uh, anyway, um, his, uh, or, or rather my sheet music in, in the middle of a solo, a draft came through the window in the, in the choir loft and blew it off the music stand. <laughs> I basically had to sort of play the rest of this solo uh, pretty much by ear, just sort of try to figure out what might sound good. And uh, uh, the the music director definitely noticed. But anyway, there you go. So occasionally you have little moments like that. Uh, in fact, I was I'd also once early in my radio career, I was on a college station. I did have a fly whizzing around the studio, really driving me crazy, and. Uh, Landing on the wire copy as I was trying to read the news it was pretty tough, but uh, you know these things happen. You kind of have to roll with it, and and I thought uh, that little aspect of the debate, uh, Vice President Pence uh, behaved or performed admirably, which is basically he acted as, as if there was nothing going on, and and it was just the pictures later that came out and showed this fly pretty firmly embedded in his hair. Uh, so there you go. He kept his calm. And uh, um, do you think that? Uh, in terms of the substance, James uh, James Tedesco, I'm I'm wondering if if you felt as though um, there were any real points scored in either direction, or uh, was this uh, really kind of an exercise in futility at this point because the election uh, it seems like a lot of voters know what they're doing already if they haven't actually done it. I think the conversation about healthcare is particularly important as we are in the midst of the pandemic. So I think the pandemic and a conversation about healthcare kind of go hand in hand. I think that came mm-hmm. up. Uh, I think Pence did a lot of uh, heavy lifting to try and sidestep that, especially in the moment where at the end of his time, he turns to Kamala Harris and he says, he says something to the effect of the difference between you and I is that uh, your ticket and my ticket is that we believe in the American people. We trust the American people. And that seemingly, you know, that otherwise just partisan statement becomes extremely accelerated at the point where the next sentence is the Green New Deal, all government control. It's like, this is you. But meanwhile, we're about freedom and respecting the freedom of the American people. And so through that, he bundled this idea into, like, are we going to have a government dictator state or are you going to choose the Trump-Pence ticket? And there's no reason to believe that at all, but he just at the very end tagged on this theme of, of you know, fear-mongering. And this is exactly what we saw in the last debate where Trump, it's much easier to interject or tag things on at the end of your statement that suddenly capture these abstract scary themes because you don't end up having to defend them because it's the end of your time and i think if you watch that debate again that was a pattern uh that really came up a lot but to your question did anything of substance come up i think kamala harris appropriately prosecuted the case against uh vice president pence that there she right out of the gate in this debate she brought up a lot of facts and figures about what it looks like on the ground across america for deaths for infection rates, for uh, hospital facilities. And I I think that she adequately prosecuted that case. And I I read that as very effective. Dave Kelly, who do you think won the debate overall? I I, I would say probably Harris because Pence had such a heavy burden. But but I want to say that... um, uh, uh, I, I, the, the undenied threat to pack the Supreme 
Supreme Court um, scares the heck out of me. Um, if we begin to turn the Supreme Court into that kind of a political animal, the independence of the judiciary disappears, and that will be uh, uh, pulling down one of the central pillars of our government. Um, I understand the hypocrisy of uh, the, the Amy Tony Barrett uh, nomination and proceeding with it right now, um, but the fact of the matter is, um, the Republicans control the presidency. They control the Senate. They have the power and the right to do it. Um, and if the response is a packed Supreme Court, um, the thing will devolve into one of the biggest tragedies in history, at least in our history. It was disappointing uh, that they definitely sidestepped that question, but. There are lots of caveats you can add to packing the Supreme Court that make it not such a far cry even from what we have today. The idea that some of these judges were appointed 40 years ago, I mean, that seems pretty radical to me. I don't think it's that criminal to consider what packing the court could look like. Tell uh, tell some of our listeners who may not be completely familiar with this, uh, uh, Dave, uh, I'll start with you, uh, packing the court. What does that actually mean, and and, uh, when did it last happen? Well, the threat during the Depression on the part of Franklin Roosevelt when he had a Supreme Court that was not uh, consenting to some of the New Deal initiatives, uh, that was the, 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 the original the, the threat, but it, it went nowhere. Um, people were wise enough at that point to recognize the kind of disaster um, that it could lead to. The... the Establishing the nine-member court has been uh, a, just a, a, a well-preserved precedent since after the Civil War for you know more than 150 years now, and um, uh, it has evolved with a recognition of how important an independent judiciary is to the rule of law, um, and uh, you know unfortunately our our Constitution isn't clear on that, and there is room for uh, mayhem. Um, uh, and, and if we start to have some kind of an ideological litmus test, and uh, the, the party in power can pick the number and choose the, the, the majority of, of the court, uh, we lose balance. Um, uh, we, we have to be really very careful with that. Um, as much as there may be anger, dissent, conflict over some of these choices, um, if we go too far in this battle, in this conflict, we're going to do some serious damage to our ability to keep the rule of law in place. You know, uh, I, I kind of doubt the Democrat. I think it would go nowhere this time also. That's just my sense of it because I think the... Uh, I, you know, particularly with with somewhat cooler heads than currently reside in the uh, in the White House in uh, in control, I don't think they would actually do it. But I think I think keeping the threat open is actually. I mean, I was I was thinking that that, that one answer that Kamala Harris could have given, um, she could have said court packing is almost as bad as what the Republicans are doing in trying to squeeze another right winger onto the court. Almost, not quite. She could say, "We haven't decided what we would do, but if they're gone, if if they've gone nuclear, 
we would be well within our rights to respond in kind. Uh, I think that would be, you know, one way to handle it that would basically put the onus back on the Republicans and, and, and be a reasonable sort of de- debating stance there. I want to shift gears a little bit. We just have a few minutes to go here and, and ask the two of you to sort of uh, handicap or, uh, or provide some pregame maybe. Uh, in, in the event there actually are future debates between, uh, President Trump and, uh, and, uh, Joe Biden, the, uh, Democratic nominee, uh, former vice president, uh, the, um, the news there, of course, is that, uh, that the uh, debate commission announced, uh, this week that it wanted to have the, uh, two, uh, ticket leaders, the President Trump and Joe Biden, um, Debate virtually, meaning be separated physically from one another as a guard against the spread of uh, the COVID-19 virus, which of course just a week ago it was announced the uh, president had, uh, had contracted. Um, and the president has responded to that by saying, I don't want to debate in that fashion. I want to debate face to face. And, uh, uh, so it looks like the, the, uh, the debate may not happen, but, uh, in case they, in case they do, uh, come back together, uh, I wanted to get some some sort of thoughts about you uh, about that debate from from the two of you and how it might go. But actually, before we do that, I believe we have a caller on the line. Someone someone from Barry. I missed the name. Betty from Barry. Good morning, Betty. Good morning. Hi, I have a comment to make. I know someone was talking about the interruptions in the debate with uh, Harris and Pence. Well, the facts mm-hmm. are that Pence did interrupt ten times, and. Uh, Harris interrupted five times. So, you know, and I also think that someone made a comment that she came across, I don't know, in a way that she was smiling a lot. I didn't take it like that. I took it like she came across sneering a lot. As a woman's perspective, that's exactly what she did. You might think it's smiling, but it didn't come across to me like it was smiling or anybody in my household. So, uh, you know, I take it for what it's worth. But I don't believe that. I mean, I don't believe she came across. I, I I didn't get a good feeling from her at all. Actually, I didn't get a good feeling from either one. Uh, Pence was very uh, articulate and smart. Of course, he didn't come across very warm. You know what I mean by he he, he was yep. sort of monotone voice. You know what I'm saying? You he, he wasn't like Kennedy or Obama. He didn't really grab you. Her, on the other <laughs> hand, she was a little bit more passionate. However, she rubbed me totally the wrong way. Totally. Got it. That's okay, well, thank you. Say. Thanks for the call, Betty. Uh, real quickly, Dave Kelly, just a minute to go, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, what should, uh, what should uh, Biden be thinking about preparing for a next debate, if there is one, with Donald Trump? Um, I guess my advice to him would be to go back and listen to some of the earlier debates between people like John Kennedy and Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and Robert Kennedy and uh, do everything he can to bring debate back to the higher level that it has been at for years. Um, All right, have- i gotta, I got to call it there. Unfortunately, you, you, your time's up, and I'm the moderator. <laughs> okay. Dave Kelly, thanks very much for joining me this morning. James Tedesco, thank you. Also, uh, a good, good uh, discussion, gentlemen. Uh, and that's uh, going to do it for this hour. We're going to have another hour of the Dave Graham Show following the uh, CBS News break at the uh, at 10 o'clock. And then we'll be talking with our friend Bob Nay, national correspondent, in just a couple minutes, too, folks. So stay with us. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. 
The Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Thanks for staying with us into the uh, second hour of our program on this uh, Friday, the uh, the 9th of October, 2020. We have uh, our national correspondent, Bob Nay, with us, as we often do on Fridays, or pretty much always do on Fridays these days, and I really appreciate that. Bob's on the line with us. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, good morning, Dave. And uh, what is going on out there? This seems like a lot. Uh, are we? Uh, is, is President Trump going to get back out on the campaign trail this weekend? Well, he is, and of course, the big news is that he said he's not doing a, de- a virtual debate, which is what the presidential commission said would happen. Uh, Biden uh, then also pulled out of the debate and is going to do an ABC town hall. Biden is. What Trump will do, I you know, I don't know yet. He'll do something that night, obviously. So it looks like the debates are are off. Um, I think it, the presidential commission could have probably posed it a little bit different, frankly, where they could have said, you know, you need to have a coronavirus test. If you show negative, we separate you like we did the VP, you know, but that's mm-hmm. not the way it went. And so um, Trump said, fine, I'm just not doing virtual. Yeah, um, and is there, what is the word uh, from uh, doctors on whether he would be likely um, contagious still from his from his own bout with the coronavirus? So is that no unknown? No word on it yet. I mean, I'm assuming if he shows negative, then he's, you know, he's negative and uh, wouldn't be any more contagious than anybody else that we don't know whether they have it or not. You know, I would assume, yeah. you know, that. I mean, people... Uh, out in in the United States, if they have been found with the virus, they have a quarantine period, and then they're tested. I know from waitresses, you know, that um, uh, have caught the virus, they have a quarantine period. They're retested, then they come come back to work. So, in the regular workforce, that's how it's at least that's how it's been running. Yeah, and um, do most people when they catch the coronavirus, do they, you know, have a few? days of not feeling very well and then kind of return to uh, to the game, whatever they're doing, or, um, I mean, obviously it has killed more than 210,000 Americans, so some people, uh, but I'm just trying to figure out uh, if you know or have any sense of whether the course of it, which seems to have gone uh, about as well as one could expect for anybody getting the coronavirus uh, in the president, um if, if that's if that's more common than uh, than people might estimate, well, you know it's a great question. I have talked to a couple of doctors about it who have dealt with the virus, and what mm-hmm. I've been told, at least by those physicians, is that you know cases are different. Some people have suffered a mild headache. Some people don't even know they've had it. Some people have gotten horrifically ill, and then of course some people have developed you know, multiple uh, problems and lung and, you know, uh, obviously heart difficulties off of it. So each case has been kind of, you know, not each case, but cases are different depending on the person, 
their immune system, the treatment, you know, and things like that. So, I, but I do know uh, that the doctor told me there's cases where people basically develop them mild cold and a, um, you know, a headache, and that was the extent of it, and then it was over. Yeah, well, I guess the president uh, looks like he's in in one of those categories of uh, having a fairly a fairly mild course. And of course, you know, when people first heard he had it a week ago, uh, there was a lot of concern about you know the fact that he had some, he has some uh, you know sort of coexisting uh, comorbidities, I guess they're called, or, or extraneous uh, risk factors, including right. being seventy four years old, being uh, obese, and uh, et cetera. But uh, he seems to have. Uh, so far, it looks like he is uh, going to be one of those who are among the luckier of the people who contract the disease. Well, I think he is. I, I think the big question on this is, you know, if he's tested, is he negative or not? Yeah. Uh, not, yep. you know, he can't carry symptoms and then go out out publicly, but is he negative or not? Of course, I'm sure they, if he's the president, I'm sure they're testing him every day. One would expect that, although it seems as though there's some uncertainty about how often he was getting tested leading up to this now because, uh, you know, people have asked, uh, when was your last negative test? When was the president's last negative test? And the answer has not been immediately forthcoming. So, uh, uh, now there's speculation I've, I've heard in some quarters that maybe he wasn't getting tested regularly, which is kind of a surprise, isn't it? It is. I mean, look, I, I would say, and I, I personally wouldn't have any quibble with this if if they said that Biden and Harris and Pence and Trump are all tested every three days. Fine. I mean, they're running for the highest office in America, and uh, you know that that should be fine. I assume with the public, you know, to be tested like that. Frankly, I kind of assumed that they all were tested fairly fairly regular. Uh, I mean, yeah. Again, it's Trump or. Pence, uh, I mean Trump or um, <clears throat> uh, Biden are going to be president of the United States, so I would assume that they were both tested. I guess I'm wrong. And and you know I, I, the um, uh, you think about the other sorts of people who have been tested a lot lately. Uh, for instance, um, major league athletes uh, before games and in between games, etc. They're being tested all the time, and occasionally some are showing up. Uh, uh, positive, like uh, you know, Cam Newton of the Patriots, and uh, and they're they're out for a while, and and so it's a it is a still a tough situation. Um, I know that uh, President Trump would not want to be obviously out of the game. It's a very important game for him going on right now, which is called the 2020 campaign, and uh, so it is a it is a time when when you definitely want not to be missing <laughs> from action, but uh, right. it's it's a um, uh, it does seem like there's there's a legitimate call for uh, him or Joe Biden or or either of the vice presidential candidates to have regular tests as well as you were suggesting. So I think uh, right. makes sense to me. I, mean, uh, I think there there exists a double standard, obviously, of certain political figures versus the public, and I understand that. Get example: our governor was going to see President Trump, and he got tested, and it showed positive. He got retested and it showed negative. Um, yep. Right. If if you're a waitress, I'm, well, I'm going to use my daughter's example. She's a waitress. She had to get tested uh, or couldn't work, and she tested negative. But had she had a false positive, there would not have been a second test. She would just not have worked. So yeah, you know, yeah. Political people, there's a little different standard. Yeah, that, that is for sure. And uh, I don't, 
I mean, a lot of folks would sort of probably question that, at least kind of theoretically, but it's uh, the way the world seems to work. So right. there you go. Right. Hey, uh, Bob Nay, um, I'm wondering uh, if you are have any any sense of uh, what's your current read overall in this campaign. I mean, are you predicting uh, a, a big uh, a big victory for the president, despite what the, some of the polls are indicating, or do you think the polls are, as they show, are pretty accurate? You know, last election, Ellen Ratner and I, out of 12 people with Talk Media News Service, Ellen and I were the only two that went with Trump. At the very end, uh, the rest of the media service went with uh, Clinton, and we went with Trump because, you know, we. I looked at the, so did Ellen, we kind of analyzed everything. I have been on this one all over the place. I can tell you two months ago, uh, it was Trump. If you ask me today, I'm going to kind of clarify this, today, I would say Biden uh, becomes the President of the United States um, because Trump has, uh, for a lot of reasons, but Trump has, dropped in the senior base he cannot afford to drop now the reason i say today this is a very strange world you've been around a long time i've been around a long time i haven't seen Mm -hmm. anything like this politically in my my lifetime if you could write a script you know uh yeah so right now i would say biden definitely uh if the election were held today i think biden would would take it but but uh there's a few weeks left and anything can shift this it's yeah, close. Uh, that is that does seem to be the case. Uh, hey, Bob Nay, I thank you very much for joining us today. Let's do this again next Friday, shall we? Have a great weekend. Thanks, yes, you too. We have with us uh, Tom Farmer. He is a co-author of a new book. It is called Bombarded, and it is all about the uh, internet and it's the, the the role it has come to play in our lives, uh, both uh, in terms of collecting information about individuals and uh, to the advantage of uh, companies which are paying for that information. Also, uh, the way it is imparting information to us, much of which is of, uh, shall we say, questionable veracity, questionable quality, etc. And uh, sounds like a very Interesting project. We wanted to talk with uh, Tom Farmer about it some. Tom, good morning. Thank you for joining me. Dave, it's a great pleasure. Good morning to you, and thank you for having me in. Sure. Uh, we should mention that uh, you have a bit of a history here in Vermont. You uh, worked at one point in your career for WCAX, right? I am excited to be back on the air in Vermont for a few minutes with you. I'm a proud Channel 3 alum from the uh, uh, the 1980s, if any of your uh, uh, listeners go back that far. And after Channel 3, I went to work for CNN in Washington for uh, the 80s and 90s. And uh, you told me yesterday you... Uh you had worked as a producer on the Larry King show, the uh, the king of uh, of talk. Uh, he uh, and and uh, I, I I was I was telling you I probably can't hold a candle to him because he really is. Uh, you know I'm feeling a little bit here like I'm I'm uh, playing pickup basketball in the park and LeBron James shows up. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm not the LeBron James of talk radio. That may be okay. you, man. But uh, I, I ended up at CNN as executive producer of Larry King Live, which at the time was the network's highest-rated program, and I learned an awful lot from watching the master at work. Yeah, I, I should have put on my suspenders this morning, but I forgot to, so there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Tom, uh, this this project that you got into, um, it, and uh, it, it, it looks like a real... Uh, a really interesting piece of work. What what prompted your uh, your involvement in uh, in this book project? 
Well, first, thanks for mentioning Bombarded. Very kind of you. This is publication week, so uh, we're, we're mm-hmm. so happy to have the attention in Vermont. While at CNN, I met a great guy named Cyrus Crone, and we worked together for a while behind the scenes. Cyrus went on to uh, become publisher of Slate, the online magazine, which was founded in the mid-late 90s. Uh, and I went on to the West Coast interactive scene to develop uh, Internet uh, uh, initiatives and websites and, and um uh, help companies try to succeed online and we talked for years and years about what we saw going sour in the online space and about a year ago thought we should try to write about this uh, and the book comes out now just as an awful lot of what we were worried about uh, sort of blooms to crisis proportions in society and with regard to this election a lot of folks uh, were talking back in the 90s about the great hope of the Internet sort of democratizing media in particular, but just the ability of people to get in touch with one another and be um, be more uh, agents of their own path forward, let's say. Uh, there was just great hope about, about the ability of uh, this information sharing to happen among just average citizens and so on. Uh, it, it seems to, as you say, gone sour a little bit, and um, I'm wondering... What are the chief reasons that that has happened? Uh, Dave, uh, can I tell you something? Uh, Looking back at that era uh, of optimism, we were so naive about how things would unfold. I think in those early days, we all thought that um, citizen journalists with access to the web would rise up and and the old fogies like the New York Times wouldn't matter anymore uh, because a a core of, of dedicated citizen reporters would sweep them away with truth and beauty. What we failed to account for, uh, Dave, was an awful lot of those people were crazy um, or had really nefarious intent or would set out to deceive people. And in retrospect, trusted brands in the media space now matter more because the big crisis uh, online is, is a trust crisis. Who do you trust? How do you know where this information came from? What was the motive of the person you wrote? Who wrote it? Uh, in the cereal aisle at the supermarket, every box has a little chart on it that says uh, how many calories per serving and how much sugar, and you can judge for yourself whether you want to eat that. There is no such label on Internet information. You have to figure it out for yourself. Be your own editor, as they say. Uh, we really had no idea 20, 25 years ago that things would come to this. It's interesting you uh, use this uh, analogy of the supermarket uh experience of having ingredient lists on all these products because of, uh, you know, I, I hear frequently and read frequently and occasionally have had guests on uh, talking about this to some extent that that uh, there's so much uh, junk food in the American diet yeah. Yeah. that an awful yeah. lot of people out there are, are maybe not paying as close attention to the ingredient lists as they should. So even if we had more information about uh, about what is solid information on the Internet and what is not, do you think we would uh, really, uh, really take advantage of it, or would we still uh, eat the uh, what might be uh, intellectual junk food? Eat the eat the uh, sack of chips, right, for dinner? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a great question, and I, I think that the answer is better to have that information than not. And you do know people; they, we both do who obsess over nutrition in the uh, supermarket and will pick up a can of soup and say, oh, look at all the sodium in that soup. I'm not eating that. Look at the uh, potassium content and put that can back. But then they will consume 
uh, Internet information without uh, filters, fear, or favor. And at some point, you know, your eccentric uh, Aunt Myrtle starts sending you pictures of the giant cat the size of a pony and swearing this is true and we have a giant cat problem in America. And people get swept up in the bizarre nooks and crannies of the Internet infosphere uh, to the point where nobody knows for sure what's true and nobody knows anything. I think if you had some... uh, label regarding who made what when and what they intended to accomplish by publishing it, uh, you'd at least uh, uh, have a little daylight here. One thing I've, I've seen online, uh, just, you know, reading Facebook and this kind of thing in particular, but is, is, the, is the tendency of a lot of people to uh, share stuff they come across uh, that happens to support their, their own uh, uh, sort of ideological standpoint. I mean, they thought something going in, and then they see something that supports that, and they go, right. oh, I'm going to share this to all my friends. And uh, and I sometimes wonder whether there, there ought to be a kind of standard Internet etiquette rule where before you hit that share button, you uh, uh, need to maybe double-check and see whether uh, something is being reported along the same lines by reputable media outlets are out there or whatever. Does that make sense? Or, uh, uh, I mean, do you think that people are too eager to share stuff that just happens to agree with their, their preordained point of view? Makes a ton of sense, Dave. The, uh, one of the big issues we face online is that the uh, impulse to share and the, the, the dopamine hit that you get from people liking your, your posts uh, outweighs the impulse to verify or edit for yourself. Uh, the, the most magnetic force online is, is coming back to see if anyone liked your post and see how popular your uh, pronouncements are. Uh, and that's why you have so much unfair, unverified stuff in the system. Uh, it has been suggested that uh, the whole system of likes and upvotes and uh, pushing uh, most loved content to the top of the list is in itself kind of pernicious because uh, people vote for the most outrageous stuff, for the stuff that aligns with their uh, worldview, not necessarily what's the smartest or uh, most nuanced. Uh, supposing you had a 12-hour waiting period before your stuff could be posted or a three-hour waiting period. Supposing you had an are you sure button before you post, which would might uh, which might dissuade people from posting really inflammatory or dangerous things. Uh, there are lots of things to think about structurally. And there's no penalty, though, for saying, out of heck with it, I'm just going to post this because I like it. And, then right. it. and even if you suspect that it might be wrong. Oh, absolutely. And one uh, factor that, that accelerates that impulse is uh, anonymity online. On Facebook, mm-hmm. you have to use your real name, but on Twitter, you can be anyone you want. Uh, lots of other uh, networks, too. Reddit is entirely anonymous and very influential. Uh, you know, in this country, you have to show your ID to get on a plane or, or uh, a get a credit card or, or do any number of run-of-the-mill things, uh, but you can adopt a, a, a fake persona on social media and uh, stalk your ex, harass uh, your co-workers, uh, post hate uh, material, uh, and perhaps we ought to think twice about that. Yeah. Um, people are, uh, are, are worried, though, about if you suddenly said, let's put the brakes on a lot of these behaviors um, that sounds like a government agency weighing in here, and then you have all sorts of uh, concern about, you know, the First Amendment and the uh, and and shouldn't people be allowed to just uh, 
do what they want? Is a, what about that uh, that freedom issue here? Well, there, there's lots of uh, stops on the spectrum between complete Wild West anarchy and oppressive government censorship. And uh, I think a, a thoughtful person isn't really for either of those, certainly not the latter. Uh, you can't have a government panel decide what's true and what's false, as some have suggested, because uh, who appoints that panel and what filters are they using? As you know from journalism, Dave, it's a very subjective uh, question, you know, judging uh, what, what's the most accurate take on a story. But you can create incentives to uh, post more responsibly. Uh, and bear in mind that in the past, in, in the history of this country, when we've had disruptive technologies rise up and change everybody's life, like the railroads a hundred and something years ago, or broadcasting, radio, uh, yep. about a hundred years ago. Um, mm-hmm. They bloomed out of control until uh, some happy medium was found where a uh, government agency uh, was established to, in a small, subtle way, make sure that those big forces were working uh, in, in, in the service uh, of the citizenry. That's why we have the Federal Communications Commission, which would come down on WDEB hard if you allowed consistent profanity on the air or allowed uh, uh, seditious talk to uh, rule the airwaves. Uh, no such break on the Internet. Uh, and perhaps the technology has come to the point where we should think about how to make the uh, system safer and more responsible for everybody. Well, we we can we're going to go to a brief bottom of the hour break in just a few seconds, but uh, we can talk afterward. I want to ask you about uh, how an individual citizen, kind of opening up Facebook first thing in the morning or Twitter, uh, can defend him or herself against bad information and uh, and sort of sort things out a little bit. So let's talk about that after we go to a bottom of the hour break with some CBS News. We'll be back uh, after that and uh, talk more with uh, Tom Farmer, co-author of Bombarded, a new book out about the uh, about the Internet. We'll be back shortly, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. We are back. My uh, guest is Tom Farmer, and we're talking about a new book he co-authored called Bombarded, How to Fight Back Against the Online Assault on Democracy. The... uh, Author is listed as Cyrus Crone, and it's uh, with Tom Farmer. Uh, I, I saw it somewhere referred to as, as told to. Tom, talk to me about the sort of production of the book a little bit. Uh, how did you, the two of you work together on this? Uh, Cyrus uh, is on the West Coast, and I am in uh, Chicago, in, in the Midwest. So we did mm-hmm. our collaboration remotely. It was actually pretty good preparation for a COVID-19 world where everything happens <laughs> on, on you know, Zoom conferences. Uh, yeah. Cyrus had, had a solid idea of, of what he wanted to say. I had some ideas about solutions that would... Uh, uh, address the problems that he raised, and uh, we 
sketched out a, a, an outline uh, which would discuss the effect on elections and the, the potential uh, pernicious, disastrous effects if, if things continue as they are for another 10 or 15 years and what an election in night in 2032 might be like under these circumstances. Um, mm-hmm. And we got it written, and, and, and then the pandemic broke out, and the... Uh, data wars surrounding the pandemic that broke out in, in March and April of this year uh, were sort of modeled everything we were talking about in miniature. Suddenly nobody believes the death tolls anymore. Everyone's got their own set of numbers. Uh, there's a huge fight over whether uh, wearing masks is a gesture of community support or a sign of uh, uh, um, ignorance and being, being a, a sheeple, as they say. Uh, nobody can agree on anything. So, Dave, we spent um, uh, March, April, and May frantically rewriting to uh, uh, make the book as current as we could. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's out now. And, and a lot of what we predicted in terms of uh, election dysfunction is sadly swimming into focus right in front of us day to day. What have you seen in this uh, current election campaign? Let's focus on the presidential race uh, because I'm sure that would be the biggest target for any nefarious action online. Uh, what are you seeing going on right now? Uh, that uh, sort of fits the picture that you've, you and uh, Mr. Crone paid in this book? The big thing that I think you can point to is uh, extremism and the uh, attribution of extreme positions by one side uh, toward the other. Um, this time last year, uh, an interesting stat, uh, 82% of Republicans believed the Democratic Party had been taken over by socialists. And 80% of Democrats believe the Republican Party had been taken over by racists. Well, neither is remotely true. Uh, as you well know, uh, there are plenty of people living in, in, in the gray middle. In fact, the strong majority of us. But that's not the way the rhetoric runs today. And today you hear the um, uh, Republican Party uh, calling Joe Biden a, uh, a prisoner of the uh, crypto-socialist extreme radical left, uh, and you hear uh, Democrats uh, using the, the fascism word with regard to uh, the Republican regime, uh, even though you know there's a very strict definition of fascism, and, and I'm, I'm not sure that they, they tick all the boxes. Uh, the, the fact is that the nuance is gone, and you can blame internet rhetoric and the architecture of internet information for an awful lot of that it it drives people towards more extreme positions yeah you know it's it's interesting to me that uh uh a few you know years ago and this is i, I think this is the case certainly I remember this from my young adulthood uh, i'm 64 now but uh uh, and and maybe even my my childhood uh, or as a teenager or whatever, but I remember seeing signs from then until the current times uh, on the doors of stores saying things like uh, "No shoes, no shirt, no service." And I always assumed uh, that, especially in the case of uh, of, of the shoes, that uh, there was a public health reason for wanting people to wear something on their feet, so they weren't. Uh, you know, spreading various uh, problems that people can develop with their feet and athlete's foot and all the rest <laughs> and so on. Uh, and it was purely a public health message. 
I don't think anybody, I certainly never, it never occurred to me to think that's a Republican-leaning sign or a Democratic-leaning sign. It was just sort of a very neutral thing where uh, this is a public health issue and here's what we're doing about it. Um, fast forward to the, today when you have another huge public health issue, this pandemic, and this uh, this step that people are, are being asked, to take which is to wear facial covering and and suddenly this is if if you wear a mask i guess you're you're a democrat and if you don't you're a republican or something i mean what is what is up with that well it it, it first of all it, it's tragic that uh different cohorts in this country can take such a different uh set of views uh about a a, a single public health threat um, and uh, secondly, there is a we have a certain history here. It's not all um, uh, sparked by the internet. Uh, you go back to 1918 and the Spanish flu. There were the very same wars over mask wearing. Not not, not quite as acid as as our, we have in 2020, uh, but uh, there was also resistance to uh, uh, you know slow the spread actions back uh, in. in Hundred and hundred odd years ago, uh, what's mm-hmm. changed now is the speed with which rumors fly, the extremism and the acidity associated with them, and the ability now to politicize everything in a twinkling. So that um, if you are wearing a mask, you're a clueless liberal. If you are refusing to wear a mask, uh, you're you're uh, 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 you're a dope. You know, uh, and that's the way the uh, uh, social media rhetoric runs. Uh, so it's very, very hard. So I was, I was mentioning before the break that I wanted to ask you something about kind of self-defense here. Uh, you wake up in the morning, and I have to confess, when I wake up in the morning, before I even get out of bed, out of bed, I reach for my nightstand and I, and I pick up my phone and I, uh, I look at, uh, you know, what's on my Apple news feed. And I look at uh, email and I look at, uh, I look at Facebook and, and Twitter and, um, Terrible, bad habit. I'm sure there's plenty of people who would say, "What the heck are you doing, Dave?" <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, and and uh, you know, I think this morning I looked on there, and there was some reference to uh, the president allegedly having claimed uh, that his blood could be a, a vaccine for the the coronavirus or something. And uh, and I just immediately said, "That sounds way too wacky to be uh, true, right. uh, even right. for Donald Trump." Uh, and so I did what I usually do, which is I, I Googled various keywords here to try to figure out whether any responsible media outlet, and, I, and here I go to the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, the, round up the usual suspects. Are any of them talking about this alleged claim by the president or something? No. Uh, so I probably shouldn't even have mentioned it on the radio because I probably just got everybody else out to fly into their keyboards to spread the rumor further. But <laughs> as far as I know, folks, there's no truth to the rumor if you see it out there that the president has made any remarks along these lines. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that sort of to me is an exercise, uh, uh, that is very important when you're looking at stuff on the internet. Um, what what are your tips, uh, Tom Farmer, for uh, for trying to def- defend yourself against falsehood? Basically, um, uh, have you got a minute or two before the break? Because I want to tell you a quick story. Sure. Uh, uh, when I was working at WCAX 
in the newsroom there in South Burlington. One weekend afternoon, the phone rang, and it was a tearful young woman on the phone, teenage girl, and she uh, wanted to know if it was true that the drummer for Def Leppard, the rock band, had been killed in a car wreck. And uh, I said, I don't know, but I'll find out. And I tapped away at my um, uh, computer terminal. We had uh, one of the very first newsrooms to adopt electronic wire services and, and called up a wire story from the AP, which said um, the guy had been uh, injured but uh, not killed. He was going to be all right. I relayed yeah. this to the uh, young woman on the phone, and she came back and said, how do you know? And boy... That is the central question at the core of all journalism and the main question that we confront with Internet journalism today when there are no editors and you have to figure it out for yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've always kept that little girl's voice in my head as you generate information. How do you know what you're looking at is true right now? Who wrote this? What is the URL? When your friends uh, post things on Facebook, check the source. Is it something you recognize, like uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post? Or is it um, some URL you've never seen before? Click through to it. How is the English? Is it written by people who understand English? Or is it uh, uh, robo-generated? Or is it uh, generated by uh, offshore uh, chaos actors trying their best to learn English? Uh, it does, do the, can you duplicate the story anyplace else on the web? Uh, until we develop more uh, forthright um, editing and, and synthesis functions to uh, help people frame information online, hard as it is, you have to do on a story-by-story -story basis what you did this morning, Dave, when you grabbed your phone and saw some story that seemed way out of left field. Too many people mm -hmm. just let it roll over them. But how do you know? Yeah. I mean, if if I were the extreme anti-Trump partisan that some of our listeners <laughs> accuse me of being, uh, I, I might have just forwarded it. I mean, that seems to be a much too common behavior on on the part of many people on the internet, and and uh, uh, or just shared it or something. And and there we go. I've just uh, you know uh, another couple hundred friends or whatever all have it and have the ability right. to share it. And so it could have been seen by you know ten thousand. Uh, more eyeballs by the end of breakfast, you know, and uh, that's how the system works. Yeah, people are excited yeah. forward material that validates their worldview. And uh, I, I, I actually scold people on both the right and the left for doing this, and I urge people uh, to uh, to check to do exactly that process of, of double checking stuff before you before you share it because there there is. Uh, there's an awful lot of garbage out there, and uh, you just have to, I think people have an ethical responsibility, really, and they shouldn't be just saying, hey, I, I saw it there, it looked kind of fun and interesting or whatever, and I don't have any responsibility when I pass it on to another couple hundred people who happen to be my Facebook friends or Twitter followers or whatever. Um, so I went ahead and shared it, and, and I say, no, that's the wrong approach. You actually right. do have a responsibility when you are sharing it or you are passing it on or whatever on twitter or reddit etc you're publishing um and you know i i guess maybe it's my background in journalism or something but i think that implies quite a quite a lot of responsibility really and uh you well, should have a, a a sense of that veracity before you do Absolutely. You and I both uh, spent time in, in the, the trenches of day-to-day -day journalism. You, you have heard reporters uh, tell each other, uh, 
jokingly uh, about a story, well, if this story ain't true, it ought to be. Uh, and they're yeah. kidding. They're kidding. It's a yeah, joke. Exactly. But, uh, but there are people on the Internet who forward news or what they think is news on exactly that basis. If this isn't true, well, I think it ought to be, and it does line up with what I wish were true. And that's how fake, fake news um, gets, uh, gets a toehold in, in the culture. The other, uh, the other line I've heard in more than one newsroom was, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. So, exactly, and you wish there were more uh, of that today. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that, that's sort of uh, that's an extreme case there, but but uh, you know it, it, I think what it does is it kind of encapsulates that very important lesson that uh, you do need to check out most stuff certainly before uh, before you are getting ready to publish it yourself. And and as I say, I really do think hitting the share button on Facebook or passing it on on Twitter and any of the any of these other uh, social media really. Uh, really is is akin to publishing and people ought to take that level you know the same level of responsibility that uh that uh the uh, editors and publisher of the Washington Post were showing in uh in all the president's men you know yeah, um, yeah. i mean uh, that kind and, of stuff and, is go ahead and you know when, when in, in local news uh, maybe we can talk about this in the next segment because one of the big antidotes to this problem is revitalizing local newsrooms uh, but mm-hmm. uh, a generation ago and this is still true of WCAX and uh, the, the Free Press and, and other outlets around Vermont you have a room full of people really really trying to get things right and really yeah. trying to uh, operate as filters to present the viewer with a balanced verified diet of information that mechanism is gone on the internet you're on your own so yep. uh, how do you duplicate that function for yourself? It's not easy. That's why I want to hear this fake news charge about the Washington Post or the New York Times and other sort of mainstream media and people deriding the mainstream media and so on. I always have to remind folks that uh, these organizations and you know the AP, my former employer included, they really live and die uh, basically by their own credibility. If they lose their credibility, they have nothing left. Um, oh, and and, yeah. Yeah. and uh and that's and and so they do take very very seriously trying to get it right. Uh, they occasionally make mistakes. They run corrections. You know uh, that's another right. very important uh, aspect of this whole thing. The book is uh, looks like very interesting. I haven't had a chance to actually to, to really read it thoroughly yet. I was just kind of flipping through it last night. Some here in an electronic version that uh, Tom Farmer kindly sent to me. Um, one thing that, that that struck me about it, and just in the introduction, there's a, there's talk of the extremes that, that our politics are reflecting these days, um, and you use uh, or the the um, examples offered here of uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, and you know he's sort of the the extreme left here. Um, uh, here, here we go. There is uh, Donald Trump's culture war. Theyism. The, the coastal cultural elites hate genuine Americans undermining our values and opening our borders. Uh, and there's Bernie Sanders' class war theism. The billionaires have rigged the economy to benefit themselves and impoverish everyone else. Tom Farmer, um, one of the things that I've tried to get people to consider in, in uh, various Facebook discussions and Twitter, whatever I've gotten into over time, is that uh, when you're talking about a group to which you don't belong, uh, you are in danger of getting it wrong. 
And so, uh, you know, I see people who are conservative sometimes posting things about liberals think, et cetera, where the left thinks, blah, blah, blah. And automatically, um, you're going to be wrong in the, in the remainder of that sentence because not everyone who would consider themselves a liberal or on the left may agree on this particular issue. I mean, there's a, right. there's, a, and it's the same is true in reverse. If the, if somebody says, you know, conservatives all are, uh, you know, let's say pro-life, for one example, not all conservatives are pro-life. Some believe that, uh, you know, small government conservatives may say, may tell you that, uh, they take a more libertarian stance on, on that particular issue or something. And so, uh, I, I just think that there's a, that's one of the dangers that people get into in, uh, in the sort of discourse you see online. Is that, is, does that make sense to you, Tom? It does, yeah, Dave. Uh, one of the uh, amazing studies that we uh, unearthed and included in the book uh, was a, a survey of a large number of people, something like 40,000 Americans, uh, and they were asked to uh, state their positions on uh, seven or ten key issues, uh, hot-button things and not-so-hot-button things, from um, uh, abortion to climate change to uh, tax policy. And the survey found that only a very small percentage of Americans lined up with the extreme conservative or the extreme liberal positions 100% of the time. Something like 80% of us are somewhere in the middle, thinking, ah, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, I can go a little bit down that road, but then I think this other thing. The Internet doesn't really allow for that. You know, there are no mm-hmm. shades of gray on Twitter where uh, the, the loudest, most profane bumper sticker gets the most attention. Uh, and the people who are running our political discourse online tend to believe that uh, the more uh, uh, audacious you, you are, the more extreme you are, the more attention you're going to get. So you have... Um, that quote you gave about the the vase, the dueling vase, is from David Brooks, the tortured middle of the road New York Times columnist, is always trying to strike a balance, and it's hard. Uh, but right now you have the Republican machine calling Kamala Harris a communist, okay, which is um, fanciful to say the least. And yeah. you have uh, certain uh, forces on the progressive uh, left. Uh, 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 calling anybody who doesn't agree with him uh, problematic. Uh, the, the the big response to Trump uh, getting elected four years ago from the left was those people are idiots. You are idiots uh, for voting this man in. It's your stupidity. It's your lack of brain power that got us where we are today. Well, that's um, an oversimplification, too. It's the mirror image of calling Kamala Harris a communist. Not everyone who is conservative is an idiot or a racist. Uh, and... We got to get away from this kind of reflexive extremism, uh, which the internet uh, turbocharges, and uh, get back to appreciating the nuance in each other's positions. It is entirely possible to be both very concerned about climate change and to be uh, uh, strongly opposed to uh, uh, legalized abortion. Just for one example, and and. Uh, if you are talking about climate change, somebody might suspect you're a liberal through and through. And if you're talking about abortion, somebody might suspect you're a conservative through and through. Uh, well, guess what? Um, there is uh, obviously a, uh, a wide, many opportunities for blending your your uh, positions on things. And so exactly. that's uh, yeah. Def- yeah. definitely something to consider. Um, we are uh, just about on, out of time, unfortunately. Uh, Tom Farmer, we could talk all day, but uh, got to call it sometime. And it's just... A- probably going to have to do. Thank you very much for joining me, uh, the author of, co-author of Bombarded, uh, and uh, really nice chatting with you. 
All right, uh, that's it for the Dave Graham Show. Stay tuned for the regular news conference on Fridays with Governor Phil Scott on the uh, coronavirus response by state government. Have a good weekend, everybody.